Welcome to this podcast from The Well, a United Methodist Church in Rosemount, Minnesota. Thank you for taking the time to listen. For more information, please check us out at thewellmn.church. Grace and peace be with you. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Good morning and welcome to worship. I am Pastor Ed, and I am honored to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you for being with us in worship in person. For those of you who are here, and for those of you who are online, I hope that you feel blessed as well. Uh, a lot of good things happening at the well. Let's go through the announcements here. Uh, now, it's Ash, this week is Ash Wednesday, so we've... Uh, canceled the Wednesday night dinner. I know you're all going hungry without that dinner, but we'll get by. Um, and almost all the programming is canceled this week, except for the youth. Uh, the youth will be joining us. Um, we'll, we'll be meeting beforehand the worship service and hopefully joining us during the worship service. The worship service is Ash Wednesday at 7 o'clock, is this Wednesday. And it's a traditional service of ashes, and we hope that you can come. It also happens to be Valentine's Day, so we'll try to make it a loving and joyful experience for all as well. And we have something very exciting coming up. I can just barely wait. I don't know why I can just contain my excitement. Tell us about it, Linda. (laughs) Speedy Gonzalez used to say that, so I looked it up. It literally means up and is used as an exclamation of joy, exultation, or encouragement. I'm here to encourage all of you to participate in this year's Chili Fest. Some of you may remember I had this gig last year, and I was reminded that my daddy always told me, never do anything too well you don't want to be asked to repeat. (laughs) Well, here we are. The only real change is I got a new hat. The Chili Fest committee would like to challenge each well member and all the friends and relatives you can dig up to participate in the Chili Fest and silent auction. We need chefs to make delicious pots of chili. We need silent auction items for everyone to bid on. And of course, we need eaters to come that day and enjoy those chili entrees topped off with an ice cream sundae. What a deal for $5 per ticket and a $15 cap per family. My personal bailiwick on the committee is to sign up chefs. The last time I checked the list, I only had three, and that was counting myself. So obviously, I need help. We always shoot for 40 pots of chili, but we will be grateful for as many as we can get. And if you don't think you have any ideas for a silent auction basket, check out our display in the narthex for a list of great suggestions. It doesn't have to be brand new. Share those great books you've read or the jigsaw puzzles you've already put together once. There can be dinner baskets or family game baskets, sports tickets, or even a service that you already do for a living. A lawyer could offer to do a simple will, or a techie provide computer help. I'd bid on that one. Computers hate me. Uh, As most of you know, all the proceeds go toward purchasing food for the meal that our church faithfully serves once a month at the Simpson Shelter in Minneapolis. I think we can all agree that the cost of groceries has gone up dramatically, So yes, we need your support to feed the Simpson guests. It's a day of fun, a day of fellowship, and a day of being the hands and feet of Jesus. I like to remember the passage, Whatsoever you do for the least of my brothers, you do so unto me. Thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, Speedy Gonzalez used to be Arriba Andale, Arriba Andale, which means let's go, let's hurry up. And Linda, you can sign me up to be one of your chefs. I will poison, I mean, I will prepare some food. <laughs> Do we have other, oh, this is a little bit more complicated. We had a good congregational meeting last week, and I thank everyone for being here. And I was a little embarrassed during the meeting because I was throwing a lot of numbers at you because I've been thinking about these numbers forever. And they were, it was too much. I should have had something in writing for you. And so I've prepared two handouts today that will not answer all your questions. But if you have other questions, I, what I don't get to, I hope that you'll talk to me about. I show the worship and attendance chart and talked about that a little bit. And then this slide shows the previous four years, the uh, deficits we've been running and the challenges we're facing there. Okay, so that information is there. And then here is the 2024 budget, okay? And we had a good question, you know, why is missions so high? And I, I didn't know, why is it so high? Because missions is, um, missions is $62,000. Well, what's going on? Well, that includes our apportionments. So I looked all that up and there's some more detail down in the bottom, so you can pick that up and these are available. I know they won't answer all the questions, so please feel free to come back and ask me anything that is still not covered. Now, we are facing this challenge, right? We have about a $550,000 mortgage that I mistakenly said we're paying down at the rate of 12 grand a month. That was wrong. We're paying it down at the rate of 14,500 a month. Good news. And we're looking at different options. One option is to stay the course. Do what we have to do to try and cover the budget this year and just keep paying it down at that amazing rate. Another option would be to refinance, okay? Which means we'd have to pay more interest in the long run, but we can lower our monthly payments and balance the budget. We are also talking about an option where we refinance and prepay the mortgage. I like this one a lot. Because then, in whatever period we pick, four, five, six years, we could pay the whole thing off. People were worried, what about that balloon payment at the end? Well, that's scary. We don't want a balloon payment. We don't know what the interest rates will be. But please trust me. Even if we don't prepay the mortgage, the balloon payment would be like $250,000. My daughter's trying to buy a house this week. A single mom. She's going to sign a mortgage bigger than $250,000. This congregation could do that if we came to that. We're not, I hope we don't come to that. But we're working on these plans. And all of it starts with this with a 30-day campaign uh, to help us pay down the debt because it doesn't matter which plan we pick. The more we can prepay, the better we are. So for 30 days, we are making, taking special offerings for the capital campaign to pay down debt. As of last Sunday, we had 31,000 pledged. They're gonna be donated, that's great, a good start. And several of you said you're going to be making donations, and we'll have a chart starting next week showing how we are doing with that. I know this is a little bit complicated, and I apologize. I'm sorry I don't have a plan to tell you today, but the Finance Committee is working really hard to choose what the right choice is for this congregation. There's a lot of things to consider, and we'll have more information for you because this is all about you. This is not a secret. We have to work on this problem together, and I'm really excited because I think we can accomplish this. Are there other announcements? Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, the beginning of Lent. Easter, yes. Oh, thank you. What is, the, help me with the details. When is the tea? Uh, 
Saturday, April 27th from 10 to 10. Oh, into April, the end of April. So we're going to be doing the spring tea again, and Deb is right here, and Deb is the point person on this. Yeah. And if you would like to help with that tea, she would appreciate it, I know, and you can talk to her after the service. All right. We're going to dedicate the prayer shawls at the time of prayer, so, okay. I think that's it. Please rise as you are able for our call to worship. The God of all creation makes us one in the flesh. Let us join hearts and voices for grace. In Jesus Christ, we are made one in the Spirit. Let us be united in truth through the same one Spirit. We practice our faith in many different ways. Yet we confess one Lord Jesus Christ. Yet our calling is one because Christ is undivided. Rejoice, people of God. The risen Christ is among us, calling us together as his people. Praise the Lord. We've been working our way through Mark's gospel, and much to my disappointment, we're skipping a bunch of stuff. I wanted to go through the whole thing. So before I get to today's text, I want to tell you what we're skipping, because it's too good to miss. And it all comes to a theme. We're heading towards the transfiguration, which is the ultimate expression of who Jesus is, in a way that we can't understand. And there's a paradox there. He shows us clearly who he is, and yet we still struggle, and we still just wrestle with this great conundrum. How can he be God and man? How can he be the one who really takes away the sin of the whole world? How can one being do that? We're not the only one to ask these questions. We're not the only ones to struggle. There is one miracle that's in all four Gospels. Hmm, besides the resurrection, you know, which miracles in all four? The feeding of the thousands with just a handful of food. And that's one of the stories we're going over, and I wish we had time for that because it's talking about this, this understanding of, of just, you know, this gratitude that everyone has when they're well-fed and how there is enough to go around and how when we share and when we, when we offer what we have to God first, it's enough. There's a lot of great lessons for that, and we're not doing that today. But I'm going to start with chapter 8, and I didn't tell them in advance, so this isn't up there. Verse 11. The Pharisees. Now, when we hear Pharisees, we think, oh, the bad guys. Well, it's more complicated than that. Actually, Jesus was a Pharisee. Pharisees like a denomination today. Back then, there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Herodians, there were uh, Zealots, there were all kinds of different types of way of being Jewish. And Pharisees weren't bad people. They were people who were dedicated to keeping the commandments. And not just the 10, but the, the 613 commandments mentioned in the Pentateuch. They would have memorized them. They would have worked hard to keep them. They would have been good people doing all that. And they come to Jesus... And they think he's a little too lax. You know, you're preaching this it's pretty good stuff, but uh, you don't keep all the commandments the way we think you should. And you're making claims we don't really understand. How can you do that? They say to him, the Pharisees showed up and began to argue with Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. Now, you see, it's easy to look back on them 2,000 years later and see, oh, those people, if they just had eyes of faith, they wouldn't need a sign. But the truth is, 
I'm kind of with them on this. <laughs> Jesus, come down today. Come down to this sanctuary right now and show me a sign so I never have to doubt again. That'd be the best. They asked for a sign from heaven with an impatient sigh. Can we all sigh? <sighs> Feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> with an impatient sigh, Jesus said, why does this generation look for a sign? And he could be talking to me, right? I assure you, no sign will be given it. And this is the man who just fed all those thousands of people. This is the man who's been healing sick people. This is the man who's raised a dead girl. And he says, I can assure you, no sign will be given. Because those weren't the signs. I assure you, no sign will be given it. Leaving them, he got in the boat and crossed back to the other side of the lake. He's going back and forth in that lake. We, we won't go into that again. And now the, Je the disciples come to Jesus. Of course, the disciples have been with him the whole time. The disciples eat with him. They travel with him. They hear every single word he says. They've got it, right? They figured it out, right? No, no one, no. Jesus' disciples have forgotten to bring any bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. He gave them strict orders. Watch out and be in your guard for the yeast of the Pharisees as well as the yeast of Herod. What? <laughs> we just did that miracle of feeding. All 13 of us got in the boat. Who was supposed to bring the food? You were, you were going to bring the food, right? <laughs> no. You were, all we got left us is one. We should have kept more of those leftover baskets of bread. All we've got is one loaf. And so the disciples are kind of worried about what are we going to eat? And Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. What does yeast do? Yeah, it makes it rise up, right? It's that little tiny magic ingredient that's alive that you put in the, the flour and it makes it into bread. This amazing thing. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, that little invisible thing that might get inside of you and cause you to doubt like they do. Or beware of the yeast of Herod. You don't want that to be growing in your life. And the disciples say, oh, now we get it. That makes perfect sense. Jesus knew what they're discussing and said, why are you talking about the fact that we don't have any bread? Don't you grasp what has happened? Don't you understand? Do they? No. Are your hearts so resistant to what God is doing? Probably. Don't you have eyes? Why can't you see? Don't you have ears? Why can't you hear? Don't you remember? He's gone through all these different senses and all the things they've done, and then you still don't get it. Mark's trying to tell us something. You can be a student of Jesus. You can be a disciple of the Lord and struggle to get it. That's me. I consider myself a disciple because I'm a student of the Lord. And boy, do I struggle to get it. So I can look back on these, on these Pharisees and these disciples and say, oh, these people of weak faith. If they just believe like I believed everything. No, I'm with one of them. I see myself in this. When I broke five, when I broke five loaves of bread for those 5,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? They answered 12. When I broke seven loaves of bread for those 4,000 people, and in Mark's gospel, this miracle happens twice, almost in a row. 
um, how many leftovers did you gather? And they said, seven. And he said, and you still don't understand. No, I don't, Jesus. <laughs> One more time. <laughs> Try and explain this so even I can get this. Well, then we have this interesting miracle that I have no idea what to make of. It's not as odd as the, the pigs running into the lake. That was the oddest one. It's a blind man. Well, this happens a lot, doesn't it? This one's different. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him and heal him. Taking the blind man's hand, Jesus led him out of the village. That's interesting. They just asked for a sign. Do something so we know your Lord. Here's a blind man. Can you heal him? And instead of doing it right there, showing him the sign, he takes him out of the village, maybe out of respect for this man's privacy, maybe because he doesn't want this to be the sign, and does this. He led him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on the man, he asked them, do you see anything? Maybe it was a spitting part he didn't want to share. The man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, only they're walking around. This tells us this man had seen before. He knows what people are supposed to look like. And now his blindness has been removed and he can see people, but they kind of look like trees walking around. I'm guessing really out of focus. Jesus placed, uh, placed, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. He looked with his eyes wide open. His sight was restored and he could see everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him home, said, don't go into the village. Once again, don't tell people. Well, this, this, this miracle always makes me wonder. He heals the man's blindness, and it almost works. Is Jesus having an off day? <laughs> Normally, he just does it, and it works. This time, he does it, and it kind of works, but not quite. This story would never be in John's gospel where Jesus basically walks up in the air all the time and doesn't ever do it. He, he knows everything and is always right and he's completely in control and he doesn't even suffer when they hurt him. John's gospel sees Jesus differently, but Mark sees Jesus as kind of a human guy. It took him two tries. Well, that makes me feel better. I know you'll be shocked at this, but sometimes when I do a home improvement project, it might take me 10 or 12 tries. <laughs> And then I'll say, oh, it's good enough. Don't worry about it. Is it because he's human like us? Or is there something else happening here? As Mark said, Ed, I'm trying to tell you something. He, he restores his sight, but it wasn't quite right. He could see, but not, not as well as he wanted. And then a second time, and he can see. Maybe, Ed... The reason you struggle so much in your faith life is you've got a little bit of sight, but not enough. Maybe you need to be touched by Jesus one more time, and then you'll understand, then you'll see clearly and understand who Jesus is. And then we get to a big passage in Mark. Jesus and his disciples went into the village near Caesarea Philippi. 
On their way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is big. He's been, they've been asking for a sign, and then the disciples don't get it, and then a blind man takes twice to see, and now he's saying one more time, he goes, can you tell me, who do people think that I am? Well, this is easy. This is just listening to what's going on, you know, reading your, your post on the internet and knowing what they say about him. They told him, some say you're John the Baptist, who, by the way, at this point had already been beheaded. Others say you're Elijah. And still others say you're one of the prophets. All those things are true. People did speculate about Jesus during his lifetime that he was Elijah, or some people thought he might be John the Baptist wrecked from the dead. I don't know how, when we read the story, that doesn't make sense, but at the time, maybe it did. Or he's like one of the prophets, Amos and Micah, or one of those people from the past, and he's here now. Who do people say Jesus is? That's what they're saying. And then he asked them a much harder question. And what about you? Who do you say I am? Now we're getting to the heart of it. It's easy for me to tell you what he thinks and what she thinks and what they think. But you're asking me what I think? Now? <laughs> no preparation? You are the Christ, Peter answered. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about him. There's that secret again. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples the human one must suffer. Now, this phrase, the human one, is very problematic in the text. It says in my other translations, the son of man. The son of man must suffer. Jesus speaks about himself in the third person sometimes. And when he does, he calls himself this expression, which I don't understand, and it doesn't really translate well. I'm the son of man. In this translation, it says, I'm the human one. All right. The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the legal experts. Okay, we've already seen those things happening, right? And be killed, and then after three days, rise from the dead. He's telling them what's going to happen. Now they get it, right? They still don't get it. That's the thing. He said this plainly, but Peter took hold of Jesus and scolding him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. Jesus says, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die on a cross, and then I'm going to be resurrected. And Peter says, no way. We'd never let that happen. You just told us as clearly as it can possibly be, and Peter still doesn't quite get it. We just can't let that happen, Lord. And I get this. Jesus, last night before he's crucified, what we call Monday Thursday, they finish the dinner with the disciples, the Holy Communion. They go out in the Mount of Olives to pray. Everybody keeps falling asleep. And Jesus prays one, two, three times, Lord, if there's a way, 
For me not to be nailed to a piece of wood, I'm good with that. If there's a way I don't have to suffer and die that horrible death, that would be okay with me. I'd be praying a lot harder than that. <laughs> I'd be making all kinds of deals. Lord, anything but that. I'll, I'll, you know, whatever you say, I'll do anything you want, but let's not do that. But then finally Jesus says, but not what I want, but what you want, Lord. So all of this story, all of the gospel, all the disciples, all the miracles, all the teaching, all the healing is to get to this point. Who do you think Jesus is? Well, it's easier for us because it's 2,000 years later and you've got all these Christians who've come before us, that great cloud of witnesses they talk about, who've told us who they thought Jesus was, and it makes sense to me, and I, I kind of rely on those people in history, on my Martin Luther's, on my John Wesley's, on others, Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, all those people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that I look back and I say, they got it. I've got to learn from them. Now, the disciples are right there as it's happening, and they can't quite get it. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, all who want to come after me must say to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, we think of the cross as that little symbol we wear around our neck, you know, in gold, and it looks nice. And I have an ornate one of some sort on today. They would have thought of it differently. This is being written as Jews are rebelling against Rome, as Rome is destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple. And the Romans are not nice about this, to say the least. You rebel against them, they're going to take everything you have. Your children are off to slavery. You'll never see your spouse again. And we're going to strip you naked in public and nail you to a piece of wood and leave you there to die, and it might take days. This happened as publicly and as often as the Romans could do it to show them you don't mess with us. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's talking to people who have seen crucifixions. Not like this little cross that I wear, like, oh, take up your cross. I got it, Jesus. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But those who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful generation, the human one, will be ashamed of that person when he comes to the Father's glory with the angels. Jesus continued, I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see God's kingdom arrive in power. I just this week, one of the teachers I listened to pointed out this word, those who are ashamed of me. How does shame work? Just for a second here. We've all been ashamed of something maybe we've done. Have you ever been ashamed of what another person has done? And, and I'm not. I mean, you can read about somebody in the news who does something terrible, and shame is not the, the response I have. It's when someone I know 
someone very, very close to me does something that I really don't like in public, I'd be ashamed. Luckily, the people close to me don't do things like that. But that's where shame comes from. It's someone that represents you. It's someone who's close to you who does something you really don't like. So all those people in my generation who are ashamed of me, he's not just talking about people who don't get Jesus. He's talking about people who say they get Jesus, but then they don't. That's where the shame is. See, all these passages keep coming back to the same thing over and over again. Who do you say that I am? How do you understand who Jesus is? Are you blind? Are you almost blind? Or can you see? Let's get to transformation. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the top of a very high mountain where they were alone. I can tell you that's not right. There is no very high mountain in Israel. <laughs> they're pretty good-sized hills, but they're, it's not really like you think of it. It's not the Rockies. It's not, you know, even the Appalachians. It's, you know, it's whatever. He was transformed in front of them. And his disciples were amazed, amazingly, uh, and his dis I'm sorry. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes were amazingly bright. Brighter than if he had been bleached white. Um, I had the, the fun of seeing Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember that? That's, I saw that in Broadway way back in the 70s. And they did a great job with this scene. Jesus came out in this pretty white robe for the transfiguration. And he stood there. And he was on a pedestal that started to go up and up. And the robe kept unfolding. Until by the time he was like 25 feet in the air, the robe filled the whole stage and it just glimmered white with sparkles. They don't have that in this version, but it was a pretty good representation, I thought, on the stage. Elijah and Moses appeared and were talking with Jesus. That's an interesting. That's a miracle. These people have been gone a long time, and there I see Elijah. I see Moses. Who do these people represent? When Jesus talks about the Bible, does he say Old Testament? No, because it was their current Bible. Does he say Bible? No, he doesn't say Bible. When Jesus references the Scriptures, what words does he use? The law and the prophets. He'll say the law and the prophets say, and what he's referring to is what we would call Scripture, and in this case the Old Testament. But he says the law and the prophets. Who gives the law? Moses. Who's the elite prophet? Elijah. Jesus is talking to the law and the prophets. He's there in the scriptures in between them and discussing. Peter reacted to all this by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good we're here. Let us make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't know how to respond, for the three of them were terrified. I get that completely. It says, it says shrines here. I think that's not... You remember booths? Let me make booths, the translations. Like a shelter, a place to stay. And, and I used to preach a sermon that said you can't live on a mountaintop because you can't build the booths up there. That doesn't work. But now he says shrines, which doesn't work for that sermon. Uh, 
a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud, this is my son whom I dearly love, listen to him. Which is going back to the baptism of Jesus when those words were heard before. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the human one had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, wondering, what's this rising from the dead? And Jesus answered, why do the legal experts say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah come, must come to restore all things. Why was it written that the human one would suffer many things and be rejected? In fact, I tell you that Elijah has come, but they did to him what they wanted, as was written about him. There's another sermon. Do you see the theme here? You can't really understand Jesus, even if you see the sign. Even if he's floating up in the sky, bright white, and he's got Moses on one side and Elijah on the other, that should be a sign good enough for anybody. And Peter goes, I don't know what to think. I've seen this sign, and I still don't get it. What's this talk about being raised from the dead? Remember Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code? Good book. Terrible, terrible church history. <laughs> Dan implies that, oh, there's all these other Gospels you've never read. Well, that's true. There's a whole bunch of them that still exist. And the church didn't want you to read them because they told you the truth. And that's why they kept them out. And if you read the truth, you, know, you wouldn't believe in the church anymore. And, oh, my gosh, I don't know where he gets this, but he cashed a big check on it. So... <laughs> Those other Gospels, and you can read them, Thomas, and there's one by Mary, and there's the Gospel of Truth. There's all these great Gospels, and you can look online. They're, they're, they're really good to, to read. The church didn't put them in the Bible because they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand. They don't talk about Jesus dying on a cross, suffering this ultimate humiliation, being buried and dead, and then resurrected. That's who Jesus is. If you don't have the passion, if you don't have the suffering, if you don't have the crucifixion and the, the burial and the death and the mourning and the sadness and then the resurrection, you don't know who Jesus is. You can see the sign. You can see the miracle. You can, you can see him feeding the 5,000 like the disciples did and still not get it. You can see... Jesus floating in the air with Moses and Elijah, and you still don't get it. You're only going to get it when you see the whole story. Jesus suffers and dies on a cross, dies, is buried, and is resurrected. Hallelujah. That's the story. Grace to you and peace from God, who is our Father, our Lord and Savior, who is Jesus the Christ. Amen. God has created all of us different for a reason. Let us look for the other person in our path has to offer us in the world. Let us honor and respect who they are, a beloved child of God. Amen.